Would you join me in turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 13? 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We've been looking at uh, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 and Paul talking about uh, spiritual gifts and how to use them, particularly in a church that, that was misusing the gifts in some ways or elevating certain gifts above others. And, uh, and Paul continues in this chapter talking about spiritual gifts, and then he'll continue on in chapter 14, which we'll look at in two weeks. Next week is Cadet Sunday, and so we'll be uh, focused on that. But then in two weeks, we'll, we'll finish up with chapter 14. Now, last fall, we looked at the fruit of, of the Spirit, not the uh, gifts of the Spirit that we're looking at now, but the fruit of the Spirit. And we and we noted that the fruit of the Spirit begins with the fruit of love. And at that time, I told you, I'm going to preach on 1 Corinthians 13, and then in January, I'm going to preach on it again. Well, here we are. And I'm going to make true on my promise, but they're going to be quite different uh, messages because when we look at the fruit of the Spirit, we looked at how all of the fruit kind of proceed out of love and build on love. But now, as we look at the gifts of the Spirit, we see that Paul has actually taken this passage uh, and the idea of love and applied it to how do we work out the gifts of the Spirit? How do we work our spiritual gifts through love? And that's going to be the, the point of the message this, this morning. We're going to focus on not just that center section of 1 Corinthians 13, which you've heard many times, Preached in, in uh, weddings, undoubtedly I preached it, I don't know how many times at weddings, uh, about the characteristics of, of love, but sometimes we don't emphasize the context as much. The, the first three verses and then the last few verses are all talking about spiritual gifts. That little description of love in the middle is important, but we have to understand that the context is Paul's talking about how do we use our spiritual gifts. So in chapter 12, he began by talking about spiritual gifts. Unlike spiritual fruit, we, don't all, we aren't all expected to have all the gifts. They are uncommon gifts. They are parceled out among, among us. There was one spiritual gift, Paul says, that is common to all, and that the fruit of the Spirit that everyone has to have is the, the idea that the, the Spirit allows us to proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's a mark of the Spirit in your life, proclaiming Jesus Christ is Lord. But the other gifts are, are parceled out, and then Paul goes on, they're parceled out for the common good of the church. So how do we use them in the common good of the church? And then he, he talks about the church as a body with different parts, different members, different tasks, but also different gifts. And so he's talking there about how we use our gifts as a body. But then he ends chapter 12 and begins chapter 13 this way, and I'm going to ask you to turn with me to that. <clears throat> he says at the very end of chapter 12, and yet I will show you the most excellent way. He's been talking about how do we exercise our gifts. He says, let me show you the best way. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels... But do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Notice what he's talking about there. He's talking about the favorite gift of the Corinthians, speaking in tongues. And he says, you know what? Without love, you guys sound like a, a racket. 
You guys sound like a, a noisy den. If I speak in tongues of men or angels but have not love, I, I'm only a resounding gong or clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. So all of what he's described so far are different spiritual gifts, most of them the more supernatural or charismatic gifts that the the Corinthians really thought were the upper echelon of gifts. And he, he says they're nothing without love. So what is love? Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud, it is not rude, or it isn't, does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. And then he's back to the gifts again. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when completeness or perfection comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Would you join me in prayer? Holy Spirit, as you inspired Paul to write these words to the Corinthian church, but also to us, we pray now that you would inspire these words anew to us, to each one of us, that each one of us might know what you are saying to us directly and that we as a church might know what you're saying to us directly and what you're asking us to do and how you're asking us to live. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Love. The word is, is so important that it permeates the Bible. It's listed at the head of the fruit of the Spirit. It's the key component of Jesus' summary of the law of the Torah, and in fact of all scriptures, love God above all, love your neighbor as yourself. Love's the character trait that defines all Christian relationships, relationship with God, with each other, in marriage, in families, even, Jesus says, with our enemies. But here it's the word Paul uses to describe the best way, the only way, to exercise spiritual gifts, to act as a church. Here is where the fruit of the Spirit meet the gifts of the Spirit. Now, as we've noted the last couple of weeks, the church in Corinth loved and exalted spiritual gifts of speaking in tongues and prophecy and the like. But Paul, who actually was, is the greatest defender and the greatest proponent of spiritual gifts in the Bible. He's the one that speaks of spiritual gifts more than anybody else. Yet Paul saw spiritual gifts as mere religious trappings without real Christian love. Gifts are just religious trappings without Christian love. So he promises 
to show them the most excellent way to use their gifts. And it comes to us in the context of spiritual love. Love is necessary for the proper use of the gifts and for Christian life itself. Paul boldly states that without love, spiritual gifts are worthless, just a bunch of loud noise. Of all religious actions and attitudes, love alone really counts. It's better to act lovingly than to speak spiritually. It's better to act lovingly than to know prophetically. It's better to act lovingly than to believe powerfully. It's better to act lovingly than to give sacrificially. But what is love? Well, then Paul goes on to give us 15 characteristics of love using a relatively rare Greek word, at least rare for, the, for most of the Greeks. It be, it's a very popular word in the Bible. Most of the time when you read the word love in the Bible in the New Testament, it's that word agape. But the Greeks more often use two other words for love. They use the word philos. Philos talks about brotherly love. Philadelphia, the, the name of the city, means a city of brotherly love. We use it for lots of different things. Philosophy is the love of wisdom. Philanthropy is the love of giving. Brotherly love. Neighborly love. The second type of love that, that they like to talk about was eros. We get our word erotic from it. And so it kind of gives you a little bit of an idea what it's about. But it's a love of desire, a love that looks for what it can get, not what it can give. And in particular, Paul uses the word agape to sort of balance eros. And, and uh, agape means self-giving love, and it balances that that eros, that, that kind of default setting that we have in our sinful nature, which is more of a love of self-interest. So self-giving versus self-interest. The, the natural love, at least in our sinful nature of eros, looks to get. It is self-seeking. It is possessive. Agape, or Christian love, looks to give. It is a self-giving love. The love that sent Jesus to the cross and the love that Jesus calls us then to exhibit as well. Now, both types of love reside within us, and both are good in their own ways. But they're opposites. And in our fallen state, eros, it becomes more natural for us. It, it becomes more natural to look out for number one, to look to our own self-interest. And so we need to work harder at agape, that self-giving love, to balance eros. And, and Paul's going to talk about that in just a moment, but he starts with two godlike virtues. The first two characteristics are really derived from the Old Testament view of God's character. Because God is patient and kind, he tells Moses. He, he tells us, and it's reiterated time and again in the Old Testament. Love is patient. This is the more passive word, literally means suffers long having to put up with, to suffer long with something we don't like or maybe someone we don't like. God suffered long with Israel, and he suffers long with us. Now, if we just resorted to Eros, Eros doesn't want to put up with things like that. Eros refuses to put up with things they have to suffer over. But agape goes the extra mile. Kindness is more an active way of looking at it. 
an act of goodness to those who mistreat us, maybe to those we are uh, suffering long with. It's not just a matter of, of patience putting up with them for a while. It's an act of goodness to them. Lewis Smead says, Kindness is the power that moves us to support and heal someone who offers nothing in return. It's love's readiness to enhance the life of the other person. So you think of someone like a Mother Teresa living and ministering in a leper colony, or more strongly, Jesus dying for rebellious sinners, resorting just to our default love of eros, it would ignore those who have nothing to give us, those who have no benefit to bring <clears throat> to us. Agape looks to give because Christ gave so much. And then Paul goes on, <clears throat> and he has the longest section, talking about, really talking about eros by noting things that agape is not. So he keeps using the word not. Agape is not this, it is not that, it is not that. But in each of those cases, what he's actually describing is what eros love tends to look at. So let's take a look at that for a few moments. First of all, Paul notes that agape is not jealous or, or does not envy. In our fallen state, we are naturally possessive, wanting exclusive rights over what is ours. And you see that early with kids, right? They, one of the words they learn early on is mine. Mine. And we have to teach them to counter that. We have to teach them to share. Well, agape, on the other hand, is secure enough to share. Lewis Meads notes, love is the inner power to be happy when someone else shares your friend. Love is the power to rejoice in the superior talent, success, or power of someone close to you. It is not jealous. Then the next three kind of fit together because I think that they are behaviors that seek to uh, cover over our insecurities. Out of our insecurities, we tend to act with certain behaviors. We kind of put up a front. And Paul says, Love is not these things. Love is not boastful, proud, or rude. Boastfulness often comes from trying to look good when we're not or to look better than we are. Boasting is a private advertising campaign, trying to project an image of ourselves that we want others to see. Proud, that's simply arrogance. Oftentimes, it shows itself in grasping for power. When we feel weak or undeserving, we feel like we need to do something to make us not feel so weak. And rudeness often comes from that arrogance, where people put down other people in order to hold themselves up. Some people think that if they can put down the next person, that makes them... Uh, feel a little bit better about themselves, or it makes them a little higher maybe in people's minds. You know, many ships have a ballast or weight in the center, which keeps the, the ship's balance so it doesn't tip. These three negative characteristics of eros result in the loss of balance in our lives. Being empty at the center 
Because we're, we're empty, we tend to resort with these behaviors that make us feel better about ourselves. Agape love, on the other hand, gives us the humility to accept God's grace and be filled. Paul goes on, love is not self-seeking. This is really the harder definition of eros, to have its own way, looking out for number one. Jesus calls, rather, for a self-denying love. Love is not irritable. Eros is easily angered when our needs are not met. But they're never going to be satisfied in a world, uh, in a fallen world. Our needs are never going to be fully satisfied. Agape finds its deepest needs met in God. And that frees us to be joyful and resilient to the irritations of life. And life is not resentful or uh, life does not, excuse me, love is not resentful. It, it does not uh, it credit to one's account or keeps score, that keeps no record of wrongs. This is the, the idea, it's kind of an accounting term, and it's the idea that, you know, someone wrongs us and we chalk it up and we say, I'm going to remember that. And the next time they wrong, they wrong us, we, we make another mark. And the next time, another one. And we kind of keep, keep score and someday they're going to get theirs. Of course, those things hurt us, but probably the other person doesn't even know about it or doesn't even think about it. It's not hurting them at all. But it's the, the idea that yesterday's irritation or slight becomes engraved in our memory and makes us miserable. Love can release us from the need to keep score and help us to forgive and forget, drive us to a new beginning. So these are a lot of ways in which we might naturally act without agape love in our lives, without the Holy Spirit in our lives. Then Paul gives sort of an overview in, in verse 6 of love's moral viewpoint. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It's easy to delight in other people's evil. An enemy at war, a competitor in sports or business, maybe even when others fall into sin. But love rejoices with the truth. And Gordon Fee adds, love absolutely rejects that most pernicious form of rejoicing in e over evil, gossiping. Gossiping about the misdeeds of others. It's not gladdened when someone else falls. Love st stands at the side of the gospel and looks for mercy and justice for all. And then Paul goes on with love's constant qualities. And we recognize the constancy of these because he uses the word always. Agape love always protects, literally covers. It's the very same word used in 1 Peter 4, verse 8. Love covers over a multitude of sins. The idea is not covering our own sins, but covering up other people's sins. That is, keep not making a big deal out of the, their sins, maybe when they've sinned against us. The New York Times motto is all the news that's fit to print, which implies that there's some news that's not fit to print. Even though it's factual, there may be some things that better, are better off left unsaid. And if the New York Times can get that, we as Christians certainly can get that. Agape doesn't make headlines 
out of other people's misdeeds. And love always trusts. Agape never ceases to have faith and is willing to give others the benefit of the doubt. It's always ready to believe, willing to risk getting burned because it's based on God's unconditional love. And how often hasn't God gotten burned by us? Love always hopes. Agape never loses hope. It knows that ultimate hope is found in God's love. And being loved by him gives us hope. And love, agape, always perseveres. It endures confidently in all situations. Kind of like a person with a, a terminal illness who refuses to give up. Agape endures because of its never-ending faith and hope. Paul then says, agape never fails. It is enduring. But as he goes on to talk about this last one, love's permanence, he goes back to spiritual gifts again. Notice what he says. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. Spiritual gifts are temporary, partial, imperfect, especially because they're used by imperfect people. They edify the church now, but when Christ returns, there will be a perfection which tongues cannot speak. There will be a perfection which prophecies cannot explain. There will be a perfection which knowledge cannot comprehend, which goes beyond and fulfills all these gifts. And then Paul uses a couple of analogies of the difference between now and then. First, the difference between childishness and the maturity of Christian life in Jesus. And the second one, the the poor dimensional mirror image, which in those days mirrors were not clear like our mirrors today. A poor dimensional mirror image versus the direct face-to-face reality of God. And then he simply ends by saying love is the governing principle of God's kingdom. Agape should characterize our lives right now because it will characterize our lives eternally. The only constant in our world and in God's kingdom as far as how we think and feel and act is love. Even faith and hope will be fulfilled when we see Jesus. We don't need faith anymore when we see him face to face. We don't need hope because we're already in his presence. That's why the greatest of these is love. Now, some have called 1 Corinthians 13 a portrait of Jesus Christ. You can take, put the name Jesus in the place of love in this passage, and it rings true in every case, each characteristic. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus does not envy. Jesus never fails. But as Christians who are called to conform to the image of Jesus Christ, or as we have been talking about in the evening, being disciples of our rabbi like our rabbi, we should strive to make this a portrait of us as well. So an interesting maybe somewhat humbling exercises to try to put your name in the place of the word love in each of those cases and ask, does it ring true? Is this true of us? Are we exhibiting the spiritual fruit of love? And are we exercising our spiritual gifts with love? Let's pray.
Jesus, we thank you for your love, a love that was so agapic, so self-giving that you gave your own life for us on the cross. We, we thank you for that. We pray that we might be cross-takers as well, that we might live in that way uh, with a self-giving, agapic love, that we might seek to show others the love of yours by giving them a, a small, imperfect picture of what that love looks like by our loving of them. And we pray that as we think about our spiritual gifts and how we use those in, in the church and in the tasks that we have, that we might realize that they are not the be-all and end-all, that they're here for a time and we use them for the common good and we use them through love or we don't use them at all. But one day we won't need them anymore as we are fully in your presence. We thank you for that promise. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's ask Jesus to fill us with his love. Yezu, Yezu, fill us with your love. It's number 299 and lift up your hearts. Uh, we're going to sing verses 1 through 4 and let's stand as we sing together. <laughs>